0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the Conversation Hour
1: on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria.
0: Are humans destroying the beauty that is Mount Everest? There are traffic jams up to the final summit, and if you do reach the final peak, then you're allocated just minutes on the top of the mountain to take in the oar and to take a selfie, because there is a bottleneck of people waiting behind you. It's called the world's largest open-air grave, and the chance of death is real. But the risks run deeper than just for the person who was climbing the mountain. There's poor treatment of locals and the Sherpas. And then there's the huge amount of rubbish that's left on the mountain. Some guides say you don't need a map to get to Everest. Just follow the rubbish. There's everything from abandoned tents, food packaging, even whiskey bottles and human waste. And there's now a real threat to the quality of the water supply to locals. Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host today, Daniel Miles, joining you from ABC Warrnambool. Daniel, are we treating Mount Everest like a theme park?
1: It's hard to say no when you hear an introduction like that, isn't it, Rochelle? Good morning. There's a real sense of magic but also morbidity that's now going hand in hand whenever we think of Mount Everest and and scaling what is the world's greatest peaks. Oh, i got to admit, I find it a little bit disconcerting when you talk about something that's so awe-inspiring, mm-hmm. something that's the ultimate physical and mental test is being treated like the world's largest rubbish can. It's almost hurts your heart a little bit, especially when you think about what a remarkable achievement it is to scale the summit, but also the risks that people take to even get near the mountain. And it sort of makes you ask the question, has there been a change in the people that are going, once upon a time, you know, we, it was mountaineers, it was environmentalists, and now are we opening it up too far to tourism? And are people that potentially shouldn't be scaling the mountain having the financial wherewithal to do it, going and saying, "Oh, this is something I can do. Well, Let's that's have it, a crack." It costs
0: anything from sort of I think thirty to a hundred thousand dollars to be able to climb Everest. So people will often use entire life savings. But as you say, it was once very few people. There were mountaineers and environmentalist people who sort of trained. It was their life's mm. work in order to be mountain ready and to be able to attempt the peak of Everest. And that you know, most people don't actually make the summit. So there's a lot of stages in between. And a lot of today's what we'll look at is whether or not people have summit fever, that it's all Mm. about getting to the summit and not necessarily thinking about the realities. And there are risks. You know, we've seen someone just recently die. I mean, there was the recent death of Australia Australian man, Jason Kennison, that just passed away. We saw a a Malaysian man just rescued overnight Mm -hmm. uh, in a really dangerous situation. So other people put their lives at risk as well. So I don't know what the answer is. That's a little bit about what today's show is really, isn't it? (laughs) Do we need to curb numbers? Do we need to think about who's going and why?
1: But then what happens if we do make that kind of move? Because it's not just about the people who are climbing. Climbing Mount Everest is such an intrinsic thing for the communities around Nepal and Tibet they rely in a large part on people coming and scaling this mountain so i don't know if completely shutting it off is the answer no. but maybe the risks And exactly how fatal this can be isn't well known enough. Have we lost respect for the mountain by the fact that it's actually become such a commercial viability? We're we're seeing more people than ever climbing Everest. Just this last climbing season alone, the government issued 478 passes to climb the mountain. That's the most they've ever done And it probably shouldn't come as a surprise now that the latest climbing season's also been the most deadly. Um, Jason Tennyson became the 10th person to die on Mount Everest this season. Um, It's a season that's twice as deadly as usual, and with that increased number of people becomes the increased amount of rubbish and traffic and, I don't know... are we losing respect for the mountain and what happens when that does become a reality? So have we gone too far? Should anyone, if you can afford it, be allowed to
0: climb Everest? Do we need to find a way to curb the numbers of people who are climbing the mountain? And some people are even asking now, is it still ethical to climb Mount Everest?
1: On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria.
0: This is The Conversation Hour. Rochelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne. Daniel Miles joining you from ABC Warrnambool. We're looking at whether or not we need to pull back the numbers of people who are climbing Mount Everest. I wonder if it's something like a ballot system, so to speak, Mm -hmm. looking at why, the training that you've done, the Mm -hmm. reasons behind it some of the ethics, some of the knowledge, maybe some of the local knowledge that you have mm. of the area. But then on top of it, you've got to look at the support that is being given and maybe the support that has been given by the person who is hoping to climb it to the local community as well. What are you going to give back?
1: Exactly. Does part of that money that you put forward, that forty dollars to $100,000, do we need to have a better trickle-down effect for that to actually reach those people who are really being impacted and also, has the actual climate itself changed? It's not what it used to be. No. Um, Kathy's called in from Northcote. Good morning, Kathy. Good
2: morning, Daniel, is it?
1: Yes, it is.
2: Good morning, Daniel and Rochelle. Just yesterday morning, I was out for breakfast with my very good friend. We started to trek in Nepal together, and that's why we're still long-life friends now. She's just got back about 10 days ago from base camp, and she we spent the whole two hours just talking about that and what she was telling me is just horrendous what's going on up there the litter's been a bad thing even when we were there decades ago that's been a big problem and the the government did introduce um rules that you had to bring out um gas bottles being left behind at base camp you had to bring out more than you took up uh, just to clear them out now that's years ago but what's happening Mm. now as she said the Japanese, especially, very cashed up, wealthy Japanese, they're helicopters. don't know whether it'll be just the
0: Japanese, but continue, yeah.
2: Yeah, but it is because they're the ones that are catching a helicopter in, not acclimatising, and then catching a helicopter out.
0: And yeah, the one I, in I mean, a point, Cathy. I mean, I'm not going to, uh, you know, I don't know whether it, or not it's one nationality that's doing this, mm. but there's lots of people that aren't doing the training. So we'll take that point, that aren't mountaineers, that aren't doing the training. It is easier now than ever before. When well, not say so easy, I use that word loosely, but there are yeah. there is more assistance, there's more technology involved in oh, order to help you get up the mountain.
1: And it's become more of a commercial reality as well. There are people who have done this time and time again that make it a little bit easier, which comes back to the point of have we potentially lost respect for the actual endeavour that it is to climb Everest? I mean, that seems a silly thing to say when you actually say it out loud. Have we lost respect for climbing the world's highest peak that has caused so many fatalities over so many years? But in the 70 years since it has been scaled, it does become easier in a sense because we have those paths and we have, like you said, the technology. There's there's obviously one side of the mountain that you can climb up and um, jeeps can take you a certain element of the way. Um, but yeah. one thing I really want to talk about is the fact we've, Going to chat to someone who's done it.
0: Absolutely. Brigitte Muir is Australia's first woman to climb Mount Everest and the first Australian to climb the Seven Summits, which is the highest mountain on each continent. Brigitte, a warm welcome to the conversation hour. So many people are lured to the mountain, they spend their life savings, they risk death. Can you paint us a picture? of why the incredible beauty and the environment that is the 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 mountain itself and the area what draws people there
3: it's the highest mountain on the planet that's as simple as that and as daniel was saying there's something magical about it about being on the summit and looking down and everything is below you so of course People are going to want to experience that and I would like to point out that that can happen not just on the highest mountain on earth, that can happen on the top of any mountain and there are so many of them on the planet, you don't have to go to Mount Everest to experience a feeling of belonging and connection with everything and in fact it probably doesn't happen on Everest anymore.
1: Brigitte, can you take us through, it's, it's very easy for for us to say, it's hard to climb Mount Everest, but it's more than just hard. It, it's years of training and then also multiple attempts because not everyone that has a crack gets up there the first time. And I, I think you yourself took a number of attempts to actually reach the summit. Can you take us through exactly what you had to get, A, mountain ready, but B, some of the, I guess, the hurdles that you faced in all of those multiple attempts before you actually reached the summit?
3: Well, I had been climbing for quite a few years before I got onto Everest. I, uh, I started climbing in the late 70s and I actually reached the summit in 97. So you can do the the math. I was on Everest four times. I got up on my fourth attempt. I was there twice from Tibet. And uh, what happened then the first time, we didn't have much help at all on the mountain. And the weather was really bad, so we didn't get very high. Um, Only two people, very, very strong climbers from the tip, one Sherpa and one Polish climber, got to the summit and um the second time i actually ran out of oxygen um actually my head torch stopped working on the way to the summit again in tibet and i was in a place at eight thousand five hundred meters where i couldn't go up or down so i had to wait for light to make my way back down to the last camp and i ran out of oxygen in the process and then that was the end of the trip so that was um, the end of my attempts for that year the next year, I went back to Everest from Nepal, and that was in 96, where there was a, a big tragedy. A lot of people died mm-hmm. on summit day. Um, a film was made about that. Books had been written. I was on the South Col when it all happened, so I really, really was in the middle of the tragedy. And then finally, in 97, um, an expedition leader died at base camp, and we somehow kept going. And eventually I made it to the summit and I think I was the last person on the summit that year when I came down. There was, from, from the summit, um, there were just three of us on the south col, and then the Sherpas went down and I kept going on my own down and there was only one person left that came to. So it was hardly anyone around. it was, It was very special.
0: That's very different now, Brigitte, isn't it? That idea that there was hardly anyone around and now you see images of a, a huge bottleneck of people waiting to get up to the peak and it's dangerous for them to be waiting and yet it feels like it wasn't that long ago where you had time to take in, I guess, the awe of what you have achieved and that's why you would do it, right? To stand there and to feel like you were quite literally on top of the world that just take us through that moment of when you're up there. Is it worth it all? Is it worth the training, the cost, the risk of death? Is it worth it for that one moment to stand on top of Mount Everest? Well, to
3: me, it was a huge relief because I decided in uh, 1998 that I was going to climb the highest peak on each continent. So there. And, you know, it took me nine years to to finish that long-term plan and I wasn't going to stop until I finished. So that meant I went to Everest four times before I finally got up and I remember my first words when when I reached the top was, no more up. (laughs) Blimey, I'm I'm never coming back here again. And one time, that's enough.
0: (laughs) Never coming back. Wow.
1: (laughs) And do you think, Brigitte, in the years since you've climbed the summit, that the way that the mountain is being treated has changed?
3: We were starting to go that way when I was there. There were um, commercial expeditions already, of course. That's how I managed to go there because. Um, you have to know that to get a permit for Everest, you have to pay quite a bit of money to the the Nepali government. And in fact, they're never going to limit the number. Well, they might limit it, but, you know, the permits this year, you seem to have a lot of information, which is very accurate, and I'll add something to it. The permits for Everest actually gave the government 5.8 million in royalties, and we're talking about US dollars here, and all that stays in Kathmandu. So, um you know it's it's a good money making machine they're not going to stop it um so that's that's the commercial side of it and yes it has grown bigger and bigger all the time um ever since probably the early 90s perhaps mm-hmm. yeah and these days, it's not just the number of people that go there, but the amount of facilities. It's it's like Olmod cons. It's glamping. It's high altitude tourism. It's it's like going on a climbing safari. You know, you've got porters, of course. You've got climbing Sherpas, of course. But now you have so much luxury whether it's at base camp and now even at base at at camp 2 and um, Kathy was talking about helicopters earlier on but a lot of the helicopters are actually helicopters that bring in supplies for the um, five star expeditions and there are quite a few of them these days and they go to base camp and to camp 2 and then you've got the rescues I um, I read that there were about 200 helicopter flights to camp 2 so can you imagine it was Mm. just like flying everywhere all all the time and of course that also means that the local people don't get to benefit from that because it used to be um, yaks and locals carrying supplies to base camp or people, porters carrying stuff to base camp on their back like bottles of beer for example and (laughs) 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 Coca-Cola and let
0: me tell you we bought them (laughs) I was going to say, this time place you're going to need a whiskey it's going (laughs) to be when you sit Bridget Muir is with you, Australia's first woman to climb Mount Everest Uh, the idea that it's called high altitude tourism, it just a moment I want to speak to you about how I guess some of those old school mountaineers like yourself feel about the new tourism brigade that are coming in to the mountain. This text here, nature tourism is so tricky. There should be a cap on people who are allowed on the mountain at any given time and prerequisites on the experience should be much stricter. I'd also be interested in the cultural awareness education these commercial businesses provide about the Sherpas and the people and the importance of this mountain to them. The camps look more like tips. It's so disrespectful. I can't imagine who people the people who genuinely care for this environment and climbing. I can't imagine them having an enjoyable experience on this peak. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunty with you in Melbourne, your co-host today Daniel Miles joining you from ABC Warrnambool. And we're talking about whether or not Everest is now treated more like a theme park and whether Something needs to change. The numbers need to be curbed back. Brigitte Muir is with you as well. Australia's first woman to climb Mount Everest. Brigitte, you'd spoke about the glamping side of it, you know, all of the mod cons that are there. This is not how it once was. Is there a bit of kind of argy-bargy between, I guess, the mountaineers and the glampers on the mountain, those who train, those who it's their life's work and mission to do this and those who can just afford it and are giving it a go?
3: I think that most of the people who call themselves mountaineers probably stay away from Everest these days. Um, It would be mostly commercial operators who started life as mountaineers and then you know had it as a job and it's something i did as well but not on everest it's too high and too hard for me to guide something like that but um
0: remind me what the question was <laughs> whether or not uh, i guess uh, mountaineers uh, kind yeah. of i guess look down on those who are just taking the glamping sort of tourism side well,
3: I don't even know if you have a choice these days if you want to climb the mountain, but something I'd like to point out besides all that is that mountaineering is a place where you can make your own decisions. It's freedom as its best, and it ought to remain that way. So it's up to the person who wants to climb a mountain to decide how they're going to climb it, whether they're going to go to Everest and join the cast of thousands, or if they're going to go on another mountain, which is also guided and have a lot less people around, or put in the hard work and learn how to climb, and then be able to mount their own expeditions and have that proper mountaineering experience. It's all a question of choice, and we can't take that away from people.
1: Brigitte, stay with us, because Simon's called in from Wodonga, talking of the Cast of thousands. Simon, I believe you've got a bit of experience with Everest. Good morning.
4: No, no, not climbing Everest. Only uh, as a trekker over there, but I've climbed in New Zealand and rock climbing. And the climbers will know what I'm talking about, the difference between snow and ice and rock climbing. Um, but I've seen people in New Zealand who are training for Everest, they could have even climbed on rope. And that's probably your most basic number one skill. And here they were, orthodontists, nothing wrong Nothing against all the dollars, but uh, lots of money, they couldn't throw a rope, and they are going to head off flying out Everest. And that's probably the tourism side of it. I think in regards to controlling the numbers and the environment in Nepal, I've talked about the Nepal, I haven't been across the Tibetan side, is the Nepalese government, they are governing their way in up between income from the permits they issue. Mm and how many permits they issue, and looking after the people now. We won't talk about the politics, how much of that money gets spread around, I don't know. But ultimately, all these decisions are going to rest with the Nepalese government. Yeah.
0: So you'd like to see permits. I don't think you'd be alone there, Simon. Simon, mm-hmm. thank you. Our numbers one three hundred let us bring Freya higgins Debiol into this conversation. She's a Senior Lecturer in Tourism Management at the University of South Australia. And Freya an incredible amount of your work is looking at the impact of locals and tourism where does everest fit into your thoughts and into your body of work in terms of how locals are treated and how it's changed in terms of who can access the mountain and who can go
5: okay thank you for that question and it's good to be with you this morning yes i've been concerned with the uh rights of the workers the porters and the sherpas and the impacts on communities so it's really complicated for a country like nepal as your um caller noted that uh they need the money and they sell the permits to give access to everest as part of the income for the country it's a very tourism dependent country And so there have been efforts to create porter codes so that the companies that are employing the porters are um, required to properly gear the porters, to limit the weights that they carry, um, and to set the conditions so that the porters are well treated. I'm not sure how many tourists now actually understand the complications of the conditions there. And then there's this whole other issue of environmental impacts and the need to clean up because, you know, it's like a big rubbish tip.
1: Freya, is there anything we can do? These are conversations that have been going for more than a decade and we haven't yet found a solution. We've been talking about things like permits, uh, a raffle, a lottery to, to get the chance to actually go up and the idea of some people... the the movement was mooted a while back to bring more down than you went up with, which is a a step further than Leave No Trace that we have in national parks. Where can we land as far as finding at least incremental solutions to some of the issues that you've raised?
5: Well, I think one thing that we need to do, you know, this isn't popular to talk about our spirit um, of how we approach things. And it is the individualism and the... I don't know, the selfishness, the ego that comes with Instagram and selfies Mm. that with the Everest being there, you know, you've got to be the one that climbs it. But in fact, what I understand and I'll, you know, caveat this to say that I'm not a climber, um, that getting to uh, Everest base camp, the trek to get there, um, all of the opportunities that are there to see. Um, the uh, World Heritage Park that you go through uh, to get to Everest Base Camp, those are experiences that are marvelous in themselves. They're less dangerous. They don't cause the danger to the Sherpas and the Porters. They bring money into the economy. But it's that need to have bragging rights, because my understanding is of the people who set out to climb Everest, only 50% summit. So, you know, it's a rare experience. Yeah. So part of this push is the bragging rights and the e- ego that goes with that. I'll note that the mountain is sacred to uh, people from Nepal. You can also climb from Tibet, by the way, and it's sacred in Tibet as well. And it's like, why are we not appreciating these mountains for that, you know, for the beauty and the um, ability without having to have that image of yourself going, I summited Everest.
0: Freya, stay with us because, Brigitte, you call that summit fever, don't you? And people get summit fever. All they think, I think your words are summit, summit, summit and nothing else.
3: Um, Well, that happens on any mountain and that is something that you have to be aware of. And once again, it's... um, you have to look at the experience of the climber who's trying to get to the summit. Getting to a summit is only half the job, done, if that, because it's a long way coming down a mountain and you have to be safe and you have to have enough energy and fuel in the tank to to be able to come down safely. And, and people forget that. And that's that's when that summit fever goes comes into it. You just think about going to the summit and then, uh, right, well, <laughs> I've got to come down now mm. and... Yeah. And I must say that, you know, I was there four times for very good reasons that I had to turn back three times um, to stay alive. And I, in fact, this particular year, 2023, there is an Australian woman called Ali Pepper who wants to climb the 14,000, uh, 8,000 meter peaks and that she wants to do it without oxygen, which is. And almost unheard of these days mm. and she went up to the balcony which is quite high, very high on the mountain above the last camp and she realised that she wouldn't be able to get to the summit and back down safely so she turned back and that's what people can do, they can turn back You can back. come
0: back yeah, yeah.
3: Absolutely that,
1: that really shows the respect for the mountain as well Bridget, one thing I'd love to touch on and I think it's an important part of this conversation as well is the, the way that the local communities see and treat the mountain, because this is more than just for, for the communities in Nepal and Tibet. I know you have spent a bit of time there uh, in all of your, your um, various climbs up. How does the, the local communities there see this summit? Is it a, a sacred spot?
3: Well, I think it's, it's also become a money-making machine for them. If, if it is sacred, uh, you don't climb it. And there is a mountain like that above Pokhara called Machapuchari, a fishtail mountain with two summits, a beautiful mountain, and no one is allowed to climb it. Now, um, Everest and the, the people who live at the foot of Everest, who are mostly Sherpas in that part of the world, the Kumbu, they are making... Lots of money out of uh, the mountains, so there's, there's no way they want to see it uh, not climbed on, and well, that's fair enough. You know, it's in their backyard. It's like having the Matterhorn in Switzerland and, and living um, in Zermatt, same kind of thing. And in fact, Namche Bazaar, which is the capital of Sherpa country, used to be just so little. I remember walking down the main street in Namche Bazaar in 1984. I was trekking to base camp on. Uh, uh, Peter Hillary's expedition to the West Reach, which was an expedition without Sherpas in oxygen, just by the way, in those days, climbing oh, <laughs> the real McCoy. And anyway, there were no shops in the main street. And now it's like you in, in the town in Switzerland. It's, it's, it's just extraordinary. It's all about selling stuff and, and making the most out of the tourist dollar.
0: Just finally to Freya Higgins debiol Senior Lecturer in Tourism Management at the University of South Australia. Freya, there's a text here that says, We can't really do anything about it. It all depends on the Nepalese government to curb its greediness by issuing permits. And that's from Sean, who's in Heidelberg. How much of this is up to the local government, to the Nepalese government, and how much of it is up to us as
5: individuals? To give the permits, which cost you know, a good amount of money and um, do bring in that income. So they regulate it that way. and. You know they also regulate it by things like the rescues that need to be done when people get into trouble but it's also up to us to educate ourselves and that's true with every travel we do we should be educated about the situation in communities and prepare ourselves to be responsible and to make a contribution so when we think about climbing and summiting uh, there are a lot of porters and sherpas that make that possible that remain almost invisible um, to the climbers who are so concentrated on their own conditions and their ambitions. So we can be uh, thoughtful, educated and aware of our impacts and I would love it if we were satisfied with the process as much as the um, the outcome we're seeking.
1: Freya Higgins, Debbie Oll, thank you very much for joining us on the Conversation Hour this morning. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. That was Freya Higgins-Debiol, a Senior Lecturer in Tourism Management at the University of South Australia. Rochelle, this has been a remarkable conversation mm-hmm. so far. Plenty of texts coming in and also calls. Sue's joined us from Blackburn South. Good morning, Sue. Oh,
6: good morning. How are you?
1: Very well. How are you?
6: Good, thank you. Um, I just wanted to add um, that I was there recently um, as just on a trek. And um, certainly they are making a big effort for keeping things clean. There's lots of recycling stations where people are meant to leave all their, um, especially water bottles and plastics. And there is a whole community up there who are trying to do things with all the bottle tops and the plastics and make things out of uh, rubbish. And then when you come down at Namty, you can pick up a... Uh, some of the recycling and take it back down to to look like um, so there's they are making efforts there. Um, so, and so when you what to, took
0: you to base camp are you are you hoping to climb
6: No, 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 no. It was it was actually a friend who wanted to really do it and I just thought, Oh, why not? you know, um, as a bit of an adventure. Um, but uh, it was it was really I mean it was fascinating, it was amazing and the porters, oh my goodness, they worked so hard. But they only have two windows of employment. They've got these two months, two, two lots of three months to earn money. And after that, the Sherpas and, you know, they're moving all that stuff up and down the mountain um, or up to base camp mm. doesn't happen because it's either monsoon or it's winter and the tourists are not there Doing treks and stuff. So and I'm did you feel like Sue
0: side. that enough was being done by people like yourself, by people who are maybe only travelling to base camp, but there was enough respect for the mountain and for the locals?
6: Yes, I think so. I mean, I we I chatted we, a lot with the Sherpas who were our guides, and you know what their life was like and what they did, and you know, and I talked to them how they made their money, and, and some of them said, you know that. I asked about the regulation because you see these guys with massive weights on their back. And um, they just said, well, yeah, some companies are better than others at regulating it. Um, one of the guys had done it for a couple of years, and he said, you know, it is really hard going. And some of them are in, like, just canvas um, shoes. They don't have proper hiking boots on or anything like that. Um, pretty amazing um, Strengths these guys have and ability, but I mean, in the short, it's not a long-term prospect for them. They they hurt your neck, your back,
0: or whatever. Um, what an experience! Yeah, I, think- I wonder. Sue, thank you, Brigitte. What Sue's done, was well, she had no interest, right, in climbing mm. to the peak. So, but having tourists go to base camp, is that different in terms of pressure on the locals or financially supporting the locals? Do we need to rethink kind of how far you go and why you go?
3: Well, once again, Everest is a highest mountain on Earth, so you're going to have people who want to go and see it and experience what it's like to be in those absolutely extraordinary, beautiful mountains. But that also means that you're getting lots of people there, thousands and thousands of tourists trekking to Everest Base Camp, or just generally speaking in the Kumbu, the Everest area. And that means you don't really have a relationship with the locals; you're just a number. You know, you're the one who wants the chicken soup, or you know, whatever. Um, I've been very lucky because one of the guys who was working on my trips, I was teaching people high-altitude climbing after I finished climbing bit mountains in 99. A dear friend of mine died on Makalu, a mountain we were climbing without Chopin oxygen, and that was the end of my mountaineering. But anyway, um, so I've been taking people to the area below Everest, and it's totally different. Um, last May, no, sorry, last March, I took a group for the Australian Himalayan Foundation, and we hardly saw anyone on our trek. It was just us and the local people and the mountains and the beautiful forest, and it was magical. And that can still happen in many, many places in Nepal. You don't have to go to Everest Base Camp or around the Annapurna, which is another popular trek. That's where you go to, um, maybe because you want to see the highest mountain on Earth, but also maybe because you want to talk about it.
1: In that way, Brigitte, has some of the magic of Everest been lost and transferred to some of those mountains around it? Mm.
0: I think all mountains are magical.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was asking the wrong question (laughs) to the wrong person there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I think everything that you've just described there, Brigitte, is what you would hope to get from going to Everest. You know, crowds is what you would think you would be trying to escape. What you're going for is solitude and to feel at one with the universe, not to have a a queue of people behind you. Brigitte Muir is with you, Australia's first woman to climb Mount Everest. We're talking about whether or not we've gone too far when it comes to the number of permits and the number of people that are allowed to climb Everest.
1: On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria.
0: This is the Conversation Hour. Michelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne. Daniel Miles joining you from ABC Warnable. Plenty of texts. How much of these tourist dollars are being filtered back to the locals? And others saying, can you please compromise on safety of some of the cheaper commercial operators that are leading some of these climbs? We'll try and get through some of those questions with Brigitte Muir in just a moment. But Dr Krishna Hamal is with you, President of the Federation of the Nepalese Community Association of Australia. We've been talking about Everest, but Sagamata, is its Nepalese name. Krishna, you were born at the base camp, pretty much, of the mountain. Just how special is this place to you and to your community?
7: First of all, thanks, Rachel, for uh, giving me opportunity. I'm not exactly in base camp, but below the base camp, the, the middle hill, uh, called the Udayapur. There I was born. And I, uh, uh, in my childhood, I always see the Mount Everest in front of me. Uh, so that's the... <laughs> my experience of Everest. I never climbed Everest.
1: Uh, That's another thing. But most of the Nepalese, they don't uh, try to climb the Everest. Being being a a Sherpa is something that you would have grown up around some of these incredible humans. It's obviously one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. Do you think these Sherpas and these people get enough respect for the work that they do?
7: Uh, I'm not sure, but, uh, but uh, yeah, I think uh, in the previous time that uh, not uh, quite they were supposed to get, but uh, these days I think they get respect. Once uh, they saw that whole Nepal and uh, all the countries, and they realized that it was uh, conquered by the one of the, uh, the two people was uh, Sherpa, Sherpa, with the Edmund Hillary, so the Sherpa becomes very famous, and they got respect in the community, in country, and overseas. But um, yeah, talking to uh, on the expedition, I think the previously they were uh, pretty much uh, neglected and exploited. But uh, but now with a lot of government policies and with uh, with a change of attitude from the Western countries people, so I think they have, they have started getting more respect these Yep,
0: that's good to hear. Would you like to see the numbers of? climbers
7: or tourists reduced? I think it's too many people uh, from my personal view. I think mean, 463 this year, uh, 367 male and 96 female. I think that's uh, too much uh, crowded on the way. Uh, last night in the Himalayas Foundation, uh, Australian Himalaya Foundation, dinner, I was talking to the uh, Gabby, Gabby Kennedy, who is the youngest uh, climber from Australia, who is Mount Everest. You are saying that it was a really rough time when she was uh, coming down and people were going up. She had to lean to us the the mountain side so that you couldn't fall the other side no? so people had just uh, put the rope uh, just on on our belly, no. so that was pretty risky. you <laughs> are saying so I think it's too many people will make risk more 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 risky to climb for the climbers for the safety of the climbers. that's my opinion
1: and then krishna if we were to reduce those climbers though and we reduced it significantly what impact would that have on the nepalese community that's for so long think, grown about you know helping people up and and built yeah, an economy yeah. around the no, climb
7: yeah there's both sides no the point. one side is more more climbers more tourism more uh, um, uh, royalty for the government more payment for the government and uh, there's a lot of business uh, that rely heavily on the the number of climbers on that region and tourists so uh one side is that but uh, the other side is that safety of the climbers and also the environment degradation of the mount everest now those are the things we have to do. Uh, if we want to preserve the amount of this for future generations i think we should uh, i think we should take a, a drastic action and uh, reduce the number and but to, to compensate the loss of the income for the share people around that region i think government should uh, have some other policies or programs to uh, maybe more education to them and to let uh, migrate them to the city areas and to find some other alternative jobs there's
0: respect for the Sherpas and there's respect for the mountain itself. Dr. Krishna Hamal thank you so much for your time today we really appreciate it President of the Federation of the Nepalese Community Associations of Australia. This text, Daniel Miles, my son and daughter-in-law were halfway up one of the mountains when they found out she was pregnant. She had to abandon oh. the climb because of lower oxygen. <laughs> and Jenny's in Kyneton and says, such a great topic. My year 12 is doing, and, and, uh, is doing an alternative schoolies and going to Everest Base Camp. The key is that they are working with the local school for at least a week and they're fundraising in Australia and putting a large emphasis on the people. is better than going to the Gold Coast. Mm. Uh, Bridget. I mean, that's kind of fabulous in one sense, but at the same time, I don't know. I mean, it's a, a schoolies adventure at base camp. This is, I guess, the, ra- oh. the argument around, is it too far? Too far? Yeah, well, too, uh, too far physically and ethically.
3: Oh.
1: Do you want to Once see again. dance parties at base camp? <laughs>
3: Once again, it's all about personal choice. That's, that's what it's, it comes down to. And I would say, if, if you want to help schools in Nepal, there's, there's, there's schools which are not in the Everest area. They are really well catered for because so many people go there. But many schools outside that area need help. So, you know, you, you could take your school to somewhere else. But, of course, it wouldn't have the cachet of saying that you've been to Everest Base Camp.
8: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, But it's nice and to look at
1: Everest from other places, as you sort of mentioned there as well, isn't it, Brigitte? What was that, Zoe? It's half half the time. Uh, it's like going to the Eiffel Tower in many ways. People climb the Eiffel Tower and you look around and say, oh, but this doesn't look like Paris. It's looking up at Everest is part of the um, the appeal. But like you mentioned, it, it doesn't have Everest in the name. Um, Trudy's called in from Williamstown, someone who shares a little bit of Everest magic. Good morning, Trudy.
9: Hi, I was just prompted when you were talking about... Um how crowded things are I'm not a a climber I'm not nuts Um, and a friend and I did the original trick that climbers used to do before the airport got put in which you, you catch a horrific bus to a little place called Jiri for the first eight days we did not one tourist. It was magical, absolutely fantastic. And then once we got to Lukla, then the, the, the trekking route was packed. And um, one of the people, one of the locals in Namche, suggested we would not like go to base camp because they said the sanitation awful and the experience will change. So we went off in a different direction, and it was all of it was fabulous, but not the I've been to base camp emphasis. It was more just the experience of being there and trying to go places that weren't crowded. So you were staying in lodges where, you know, it was only you in the dining room and it was it was just wonderful. So there are ways to do it um, if you're willing to do the walking rather than the fly in and fly out kind of thing.
0: Yeah, that's the difference really, Trudy, isn't it? Thank you. Stuart's in Werribee. Good morning, Stuart.
10: Hi, good morning. How are you? Good. Um, you, you've been? you yeah. Yes, I was first there in nineteen seventy five and like the previous lady uh walking in from jury, which was a fantastic experience to uh you, know, you, don't, you know, didn't see any other tourists at all wow. uh, just just walking through the 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 villages and um you know sleeping on uh, in farmyards and uh you know having a bowl of rice here and that sort of thing, helping the locals get a bit of cash and um and then uh, I did it also and then uh, I did it also in uh, um two thousand and four and um a huge difference between the two areas. I think there was four thousand people went through that same wow. month compared. and, and the how first did you home, feel about it the it. second
0: time, Stuart, when you got there, and there's four thousand people as opposed to some locals <laughs> and a bowl of rice <laughs> uh
10: just just different, different experience when you're younger I was only uh twenty when I did it first of all. Um, and, uh, it's just, uh, you yeah, know, something you remember for the rest of your life because it's just such a remote area. And, um, you know, there wasn't, you know, the people there, it was just, I think in Amtrak Bazaar, there was only a couple of hotels. Um, and then after that, I think we stayed up at, um, a it was a, a yacht. Herder's Hut, and now there's hotels everywhere.
1: Wow. From um, a Yak Herder's Hut to a five-star <laughs> hotel. The uh, the changing faces of Everest is a real thing. Stuart, thank you very much for calling. Rochelle, what I'm getting from this is not only has the mountain changed, but... Uh, an element that we're still to touch on is just the physical endurance yes. and, and the challenge that it is. Because that's in many ways what draws so many people to taking this trek, not only because it is there and I must climb it, as many people have suggested on the uh, on the SMS line, but also it's, it's a measure of a human's capacity mm. physically, mentally. It's an incredible challenge. Uh, to give us a bit of perspective about that, Julian Perriard's joining us, the research professor from the University of Canberra Institute for Sport and Exercise. Julian, good morning to you. Uh, an initial morning. question. We know it's hard to climb Everest, but what actually happens to your body when you climb Everest? You go into these high altitude areas. How does your body have to adapt to do something as physically perilous and dangerous as climbing Everest?
8: Yes, but there are several issues related to that. As you mentioned, obviously Everest is, is quite high, it's quite perilous and the, the main the main issue is is hypoxia or the lack of lack of oxygen. I guess one thing we need to remember is that there's the same concentration of oxygen in the air uh, on the top of Everest as there is um, at sea level, for example. But the problem with climbing is the higher we go, the lower the um, the atmospheric pressure is. So that means that the density of the air um, is is much lower, so that those molecules of oxygen are, are fewer and far between. So basically, if we think of um, having 100% oxygen available to us at sea level, when we get to the top of Everest, is basically 30% of the oxygen availability that we have at sea level. So it's much more difficult, obviously, to to exercise and um, deliver oxygen to the working muscles because there's there's so much less of it. So it it becomes much, much more difficult. And in terms of our blood, for example, our blood being saturated with oxygen um, at sea level, it's around 99, 98, 100%, but at base camp, it's down already to 50%. And on top of Everest, it's, it's 40%. So it's really that lack or the low oxygen availability that makes things very, very difficult. And that's obviously from a, an altitude perspective, yeah. let alone, you know, crossing the icefall and what's associated, the dangers associated with that or the fatigue and the exhaustion of that round trip. Because the trip itself from base camp the top and back. If all goes well, is about a five, four to five day round trip. Uh, but obviously, there's a lack of sleep or poor sleep, difficulty eating, drinking, dehydration, and so forth. And all those things kind of accumulate, and people get tired, um, and they don't obviously have that less same level of oxygen as sea level. So it's it's quite an arduous and very difficult task to undertake.
0: It's incredible to think that at some point people were doing it without all of the mod cons and even the oxygen that's being oh my God. used now. But Julian. Is it true that it's the descent that is more dangerous? And if so,
8: why? Well, that's an interesting question, yes, because oftentimes, um, especially lately, um, in the last few years, a lot of people have been doing the climb that aren't quite as experienced as the climbers that were doing it previously, and they're relying heavily on on oxygen, um, but it's still quite tiring. Um, and oftentimes they push themselves, that they do not quite know when to kind of turn back. So they push themselves a bit too much and then they're very fatigued and by the, by the time they realize they should come back down, it's a bit late. So I think in uh, non-Sharpa climbers, roughly 80% to 84% of the deaths actually occur on the way down. And that's with people that have summited or in people as well that haven't summited and have kind of turned around potentially a bit too late. So part of that is the fatigue, the exhaustion, the falls, um, the lack of oxygen. So if you've used up all your tanks of oxygen, um, and you're still quite up high on the mountain, uh, you might succumb to, to hypoxia or hypoxemia. Because um, above anything above 8,000 meters is considered the uh, the death zone. So it's very, mm-hmm. very difficult to survive up there for a, a long period of time.
0: Well, that doesn't, I mean, it's really not but, holding back there. The death zone is pretty, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. pretty straightforward.
8: I haven't coined the term myself, but yes.
1: <laughs> uh, we're speaking with Julian Perriard, research professor for the University of Canberra's Institute for Sport and Exercise. Julian, is there a way that we can get a grasp on how fit you actually need yes. to be to climb Mount Everest? I mean, we, we know that, you know, AFL footballers have great strength and aerobic capacity, but jockeys, are, you know, they've got straight, great strength and endurance for their size. How do we get an understanding of exactly how fit you need to be to climb Mount Everest?
8: Well, fitness is obviously very important because it is an arduous task, and you have to climb a mountain, you have to carry, obviously, your pack, and so forth. And if you're carrying oxygen, depending on the size of the tank, a four-liter tank, for example, is three and a half kilos. So you still have to carry those things. So you need to be strong and fit. But the most important aspect is the acclimatization. So even if someone's extremely fit and someone's less fit, if they acclimatize better than the fit person, then they'll have a much easier time of climbing the mountain than the person who's unfit and might develop. some syndromes associated with uh, high altitude illness.
0: And is that why why Sherpas, I mean, there is one Sherpa in particular, I think, that has reached the peak 27 or or 28 times. Are they just naturally born climatized to the environment?
8: They are, yes. Yeah. So there's different populations across the world, so people that live in the Andes, people that live in um, in the Himalayas, that have developed adaptations over time. So either they have a slightly higher breathing rate, so they can breathe oxygen in and out a bit more, or they have a slightly higher hemoglobin mass. So hemoglobin is um, those molecules in the blood that oxygen attaches to and then get delivered across the um, across the body. So if you have a higher hemoglobin mass, you can carry more oxygen um, across your body because it binds more to that. Mm-hmm. Or if you have a higher breathing rate then obviously your ventilation is high and you can have more oxygen delivered as well
0: incredible would you ever go julian
8: i have yes i've been to the top of kilimanjaro and i've done a, a trek around Everest Base camp but that's yeah nothing higher than that in everest
0: incredible and was it busy was there a queue or did you have that to yourself
8: uh, well for us, like I said, I've only went to base camp and it wasn't the climbing season, so I went in the uh, end of November so it wasn't quite wasn't busy at all. There was actually no one at base camp when we got there because it's not the uh, the ideal time to climb to the top of Everest, so there was no one at base camp itself. Um, and on the route, it wasn't too too busy either, so it was quite a nice experience actually.
1: Julian, thank you very much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. It's Julian Perriard, research professor from the University of Canberra's Institute for Sport and Exercise. I'm amazed at climbing any of those mountains knowing that I get puffed going upstairs. <laughs> um, Sanjay's called in from Wonturner South. Sanjay, what was your experience like at Everest?
7: Yeah, we we went to everest Base camp, uh, about eight people from Melbourne uh, just last, um, last month we came back. Uh, so our experience is that place is very crowded, uh, but Apart from Everest Base Camp, there are few beautiful places which are at the same altitude as that. So we went to Gokuri and then we went to Chola Pass and also did Everest Base Camp. But most of the population knows more about Everest Base Camp and they go there, but uh, if they can go to Gokuri and Chola Pass, they are as beautiful or more beautiful yeah. than EBC. Mm.
0: And that's so, what Brigitte's been saying as well, is that it doesn't have to, don't be lured just by Everest. There are all these other beautiful places as well. Sanjay, thank you. Just finally, Brigitte Muir, you've joined us for the entire hour and it feels like we could speak to you for another hour. Australia's <laughs> first woman to climb Mount Everest. There's a text here for you. It says, I went with Bridget in March and the opportunity to be present in the Mount without a sense of needing to conquer the physical challenge was a privilege it was still challenging it was gloriously remote connected to the local communities and still a beautiful mountain country and that's from Angela. Brigitte can you imagine yourself going back anytime soon?
3: Oh, well, yes. I'm hoping to go back in uh, November to finish filming for a documentary I've been working on since 2007 called Beyond the Smile on a small community in the area below Everest. And I'm also taking another trek for the Australian Himalayan Foundation next year in, in March. And thank you, Angela. It was a pleasure going there with you <laughs> too. Uh, so much fun. I had the best group ever. Oh,
1: It's <laughs> oh, incredible. incredible. Thank you very much for joining us on this hour. It's been incredible to talk to you and share your experiences of what is a magical place. Um, I almost feel like I've got halfway there just from talking to so many people that have been there. Thanks, Brigitte.
0: Thanks, Brigitte. I feel like it's a little closer. And this is the problem, right? Whereas I'm thinking, mm. oh, okay, now there's mod cons. Mm, maybe yeah. I would go. And that's exactly f- people like me are the problem. <laughs> this text is from Peg in Mirboo North. It says, keep school is at the Gold Coast. It's already trashed in the Gold Coast. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's a bit Peg's rough from Peg. It up. Daniel Miles, as always, joining us from ABC Warrnambool. Would you climb Everest, mate?
1: Uh, not without a scooter. Some serious help needed to get me up there. I'll
0: be back with you tomorrow. Take care.